You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Russian government agencies are buying VPNs. CISA and its partners warn about the Karakurt extortion group. Clipminer is in the wild. Gootloader expands its payloads and targeting. Carol Terrio has the latest on fraudsters imitating law enforcement. Kevin McGee from Microsoft on security incentives by way of insurance. And leak brokers and booters shut down. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, June 2nd, 2022. U.S. Cyber Command Head and Director NSA, General Paul Nakasone, remarked earlier this week that the U.S. had provided operational cyber support to Ukraine. His comments, on which he declined to elaborate, attracted considerable attention. The White House yesterday said that the cyber operations General Nakasone alluded to marked neither a change in nor a deviation from U.S. declared policy of avoiding direct combat with Russia. That's generally one of the points General Nakasone made in his remarks. The White House statement seems to rely upon the ambiguity of cyber operations, which remain a gray zone in international conflict. The Washington Post reviews the ongoing controversy over how effective Russia's cyber operations have been in its hybrid war against Ukraine. The widespread catastrophic attacks against infrastructure many observers had expected haven't materialized, and that surprised many, given Russia's dress rehearsals for attacks against the Ukrainian power grid in 2015 and 2016. Those were apparently successful proofs of concept, but they haven't been repeated in the present war. The most significant cyber action was the successful disruption of Viasat ground stations, but the effects of that attack were quickly made good. Some observers see Russian failure, others Russian restraint. Still others see a different choice of objectives by Russian strategists. ESET's most recent threat report sees a conflict marked by hacktivist and criminal activity and sees the immunity from cybercrime, especially that Russia has largely enjoyed, as having significantly eroded. The Cyber Peace Institute this morning released a study of the conflict in cyberspace, 
concentrating on critical infrastructure in Ukraine and the Russian Federation, essential for the survival of the civilian population and civilian objects, which are all protected under international humanitarian law, and targets outside of those two countries that have been impacted by cyber attacks as a result of the war and its associated economic and geopolitical context. The researchers concluded that while cyber attacks aren't playing a major role in tactical advances of either side, cyber attacks are used as a means of destruction, disruption, and data exfiltration. In addition to the widespread use of disinformation, they've led to the destabilization of cyberspace. They say the conflict has seen a number of cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, such as communications services and electric power stations, in violation of international humanitarian law. They point out that so-called hacktivist collectives have played a significant role during this conflict, with the primary type of attack undertaken by these actors being hack-and-leak-style attacks by anti-Russian actors and denial-of-service attacks on Ukrainian allies by pro-Russian actors. Also, the energy, mining, and financial sectors are seeing significant numbers of attacks, both in Ukraine and Russia, as governments across the world impose or increase sanctions. And beyond traditional means of propaganda, cyber attacks are being used to spread disinformation and control the flow of information relating to the war. Russia's government apparently is purchasing VPN services not to subvert them, but rather for its own use. Top 10 VPN reports that since the invasion of Ukraine, 236 official contracts for VPN technology worth over $9.8 million have been made public since the invasion. State institutions and companies regulated by public procurement law based in Moscow spent more than any other region, totaling 196 million rubles, that's about $2.4 million. The users are either government agencies or established corporations, and they're purchasing VPN services to retain access to sources of information that Kremlin-imposed censorship has otherwise rendered inaccessible. CISA, the FBI, the Department of Treasury, and the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network have released a joint cybersecurity advisory on the Karakurt Data Extortion Group, a gang that extorts its victims by threatening to dox them with stolen information. Karakurt is opportunistic, and gives no appearance of favoring any particular sectors as it selects its victims. The gang is also a player in the C2C market, where it either purchases stolen login credentials, relies on the cooperation of criminal partners who've already compromised victims, or buys access from third-party intrusion broker networks. The data compromises Karakurt uses to threaten its victims are sometimes genuine, but often smoke and mirrors sometimes recycling data from old, known compromises. The payments Karakurt demands can be as high as $13 million, the record reports. CISA and its partners advise against paying the ransom, apart from the general good sense of avoiding feeding a bandit economy. In this case, CISA thinks Karakurt isn't close to being as good as its word. The gang seems to hang on to the information it steals and doesn't destroy the information as it promises. Symantec's Threat Hunter team, a part of Broadcom Software, has released a blog post detailing their discovery of a cyber criminal operation utilizing malware tracked as Trojan.clipminer. The threat actors behind this operation have made an illicit profit of at least $1.7 million 
from the use of this malware in cryptocurrency mining and theft via clipboard hijacking. The malware is believed to spread through trojanized downloads of cracked or pirated software. Researchers suggest that ClipMiner may be a copycat or evolution of another crypto mining trojan called CryptoCybule, as there are many similarities between the two. eCentire this morning published an update on GootLoader, a malware loader whose operators use search engine optimization poisoning to distribute ICE ID malware as its payload. GootLoader is offered as malware as a service, and it's being adapted to handle other payloads. A law firm, eCentire says, has been among the recent victims. And finally, the U.S. FBI, the Belgian Federal Police, and the Netherlands National Police Corps seized and shut down three criminal sites, weleakinfo.to, ipstress.in, and ovhbooter.com. WeLeakInfo billed itself as a search engine that could be hired to sift through illegally obtained and dumped data. The other two were DDoS for hire services. Good riddance to all three of them, and bravo for some good cyber police work. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Cyber criminals and fraudsters are known for their brashness. Carol Terrio files this report about a disturbing trend of baddies imitating law enforcement. Well, there seems to be no end in sight of people wanting to make a quick buck by considering to scam some innocent person into handing over their life savings. We have seen romance scams and targeted phishing scams. We have seen disaster recovery scams and healthcare scams and business email compromise scams. 
but I have recently seen a number of scams involving fake police. So say a police officer calls you, identifies themselves, and then explains that they think you were targeted in a financial fraud campaign. While they're talking, you might even look up their name and find out that they do indeed exist. Problem is that that person on the phone has stolen the real officer's identity in order to con you, the victim, into parting with your hard-earned cash. I mean, on the very week that I record this, I see that Albuquerque police issued a warning of a scammer pretending to be a legit officer of the force, that Thailand warned people to beware of deep fake police video calls, that UK Yorkshire County had a fake detective calling residents, and that even in my home country of Canada, a perp decided to take the identity of a bona fide RCMP officer in order to convince people they were a person of interest. Or, and this happened last year in the UK, an elderly woman gets instructions to take cash and iPhones to locations around Gloucester and leave them there. The perps, pretending to be cops, told her the cash and phones were needed for a police investigation and would be collected by officers. Now, this seems to be too far-fetched to be true. To me, and probably to you, listeners of the Cyberwire. But the thing is, is they often target people who are vulnerable, less informed, or perhaps older. People that who have a smaller social circle of connected individuals, who have cash reserves, and a deep desire to do the right thing, which includes assisting the authorities upon request. The so-called cop reels off high-level information, stuff typically gathered from a public record, just to establish authority and credibility with the victim. And this approach is insidious to me. Targeting the more vulnerable in our society by swooping in to grab their nest egg leaves the victim where exactly? Upset? Afraid? And don't forget, with no financial reserves. And like, listen, I work in tech and I can barely keep up with all the plethora of scams. So how is your typical everybody supposed to be vigilant, especially if they're in their golden years trying to enjoy themselves? Scams like this make my blood boil because they just feel rotten. So dear listeners, may I ask that you look after your elders, particularly those that like to dabble online, maybe share too much on the socials, have really easy to crack passwords, and especially those that assume that everyone out there is a super kind soul. Because it turns out there are few tiny rotten apples out there and they're looking for someone exactly as I've just described. This was Carol Terrio for The Cyberwire. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.
And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Kevin McGee. He is the Chief Security Officer at Microsoft Canada. Kevin, it's always great to have you back on the show. Uh, one of the things I think it's safe to say here in 2022 is that there has been a lot of movement in the cyber insurance world. Uh, some of it's been reactive. Some of it's been proactive. Um, I just want to check in with you on some of the things that you've been tracking with the folks that you interact with. Thanks for having me back, Dave. One of my predictions on uh, Rick Howard's uh, CSO pers uh, Perspective podcast uh, for this year was that cyber insurance rates would start to go up and that that would be a catalyst for positive societal change in addressing overall cybersecurity risk. And I think we're starting to see that. One, there's ample evidence that um, cybersecurity rates are going up as we're starting to normalize and understand what the risks associated with cyber attacks are. But two, that's starting to catalyst, be a catalyst for change. And what I mean by that is, when insurance companies started penalizing uh, people for bad behavior driving, and they started rewarding people for avoiding accidents, avoid, not getting speeding tickets or whatnot, this became an incentive for real road safety. Vendors started building safety features into their cars and trucks. Consumers started uh, to begin to evaluate their purchase decisions on how safe the product was, uh, but also on how easy it was for the vehicle to insure or how much it would cost to insure that vehicle. So we're starting to see... Um, I believe cyber insurance rates not only normalize to our industry because there's not those decades of data like the car industry, but also be that quantifiable amount that we can communicate to the business that's always really wanted us to put a dollar amount on risk and we've never been able to do. So are we headed into a time where we are able to do that? I think so. I think we're getting there, and it's just in a year-over-year -year accumulation of data. So we're seeing as... Uh, Ransomware is, is becoming much more rampant. We're seeing the double tap where there's extortion um, really driving the, the amounts that are security um, insurance companies are paying out uh, increase. So in 2021, uh, U.S. insurance um, carriers are reported to have increased direct written premiums by uh, 92%, according to the Wall Street Journal uh, last week. So that's up over uh, considerably over the 65% uh, from the previous um, year and 47% in 2019. So um, these premiums are starting to be raised. We're also seeing that the insurers are covering less and less. Uh, so you have to maybe have two or three different policies to cover what you had previously before. So what this is driving is greater discussions between the security teams and the business. It's finally that catalyst to really have a CFO level, board level discussion about enterprise risk and what the true value of that risk is. And again, I, I feel it's starting to put a number on what the cost of doing or not doing uh, things within your organization to be cyber secure are. And a great example of that is um, a lot of insurance companies are asking that basic uh, security controls be put into place, such as multi-factor authentication. This is driving real-world action. I'm seeing more and more uptake in multi-factor authentication, not because it's the right thing to do or it's something we should do, but the catalyst for that movement is we have to get compliant in terms of our um, uh, application for cybersecurity insurance. So in that case, I think it's a good thing for our industry um, and just the cyber risk landscape that we're seeing globally as well. Do you think there's a, a danger that, that some areas may not be insurable? You know, I, I think about uh, flood insurance, you know, which the, the uh, private sector has gotten out of and, and – 
you know, we, the backs, the backstop we have is the federal government where the, what really all that's available is not very good insurance. That's expensive, but it's the only option you have. Is there a possibility with, you know, the ever increasing uh, rates of ransomware that we could be headed in that direction? I really worry about that as well, because we're starting to see um, now litigation uh, play out in court where it's being decided, you know, what is going to be covered? What is an act of war in the cyber um, security world? What will be covered? Um, so we're going to see a lag because of the legal process that it takes to really sort these things out um, of two, three years in many cases that will decide whether some some industries are insurable or we're not going forward based on on the results. I think at this time, with just all the geopolitical conflict, some of the uh, the challenges we're seeing with nation states attacks and whatnot, there's got to be a backlog in the legal system of, of trying to interpret and decide, you know, what is an act of war? Who is the threat actor? What if it's a proxy, not a nation state? How does that play out? Is it a criminal element? Is it not? Um, we're going to see, I think, an incredible amount of, of um, thought put into this over the next couple of years uh, by legal minds, which will then translate into to real world action in a lot of cases. And, and I fear many of the same things that you just mentioned, that some areas of the economy just may not be insurable uh, for a short period of time or, or maybe a long period of time and require government intervention in order to, uh, to maintain their services. All right. Well, Kevin McGee, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Rachel Gelfand, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karf, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. 